0: Well, as an Englishman, I would love to be here on the evening when you get to uh, hymn number 674. And I would hope that you will stand up to sing it. <laughs> You've got to be consistent. If you're going to go all the way through the book now, you can't miss any. <clears throat> I'd like you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5. I'd like to read from verse 17 down to verse 21, and then I'm going to do another couple of short readings, one from Colossians and one from the book of Job. Ephesians five seventeen says this, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And then, if you would turn with me, please, to Colossians 3, where In one sense, we have somewhat of a parallel passage, uh, although with some significant differences. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord whatsoever you do in word or deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. And then finally, uh, just one reading from Job, just one verse actually, uh, from Job 26 and verse 13. Job 26 verse 13 says this, by His Spirit, He hath garnished the heavens. By His Spirit, He hath garnished the heavens. The subject before us this evening is the Spirit of God. Uh, We are calling this series, The Neglected Person of the Godhead. We dealt in our first message with the subject of the significance of the Holy Spirit And uh, we corrected some often misnomers about the Holy Spirit. Uh, We showed, I believe, from Scripture that He is a real person. And not only is He a real person, He's a divine person. And we saw that uh, one of the reasons we know that He's a real person is because He has all the attributes of personality, intellect, emotion, and will. We saw also uh, that He's a divine person because He shares the attributes of God. And also, um, we didn't mention this, but uh, I just wanted to read that verse in Job because it came to me with freshness this morning, and that is that he is involved in creation. Uh, It says, the Spirit of God garnished the heavens. I love the way that's rendered in the King James Version. Part of the reason I love that is because when I first uh, left school, Uh, I worked as a chef, and I worked in a five-star hotel for a man who had won the Chef of the Year Award in England. So this was a posh place. And we would charge an awful lot of money for a plate of food, and the reason we charged so much was not that the food particularly tasted good, although it was pretty good, but because it was a work of art. You really paid for the squiggly bits on the plate, that what make a difference between $50 a plate and $10 a plate is the artwork. You see, you eat with your eyes, and you look at this, and you say, wow, that looks amazing. And so we call that the garnish. It's kind of those finishing touches. This morning as I drove to Buona Park, I saw the sunrise. And it was a beautiful red sky, and the Spirit of God garnished the heavens this morning. And they were wonderful. And so he is involved in creation. That's part of the evidence that he is a divine person. Now, something we want to think about this evening, uh, we've thought of his significance. I want to think about his sensitivity. And I want to begin with this simple premise, and that is this, that if you're truly a child of God tonight, you have living within you the person of the Holy Spirit. And you have all of him. Right, Because he's a person, um, you either have the person or you don't have the person. And if, if uh, anyone has not the spirit of Christ, he is none of it. his. So uh, you, you have the Holy Spirit. But it's very evident that there are some Christians who we would say are clearly discernible to be full of the Holy Spirit. And some that don't appear to be so filled with the Holy Spirit. We've got to ask the question, what makes the difference? And the difference isn't whether you have him or you don't have him. The question is, how much does he have of you? That's the big issue. How much of your life is yielded to the Spirit's control and how much of it do you still want to control? And that is a big difference, isn't it? That's why we can recognize that there are clearly differences in levels of spirituality in people, and some are clearly more evidently filled with the Spirit than others, and yet they both are indwelt with the same Spirit. But it's a question of control. And that's why we looked at this passage in Ephesians 5, and I want to uh, just kind of emphasize this passage because it deals with the issue of the will of God. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Christians are always asking that question. How do I know the will of God for my life? Well, let me tell you something. It's absolutely the will of God for you to be filled with the Spirit. Actually, it's a command. It's a command of God. And so what he says is, uh, understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he says, be not drunk with wine. He starts out by saying, be not drunk with wine. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing because... um, What wine does uh, is a a person that is drunk with wine is controlled by that substance. Uh, I know a lot about that because I grew up in an alcoholic home. My mother was an alcoholic. I can remember coming home from school and I could tell within seconds whether my mother had been drinking or not. It affected her in so many different areas. It affected her speech. Her speech would slur. She couldn't speak clearly and distinctly because she'd been drinking. The spirit of alcohol has controlled her tongue. Uh, She spoke aggressively. She would be aggressive where normally she would be very mild and quiet and meek. But when she had drinks, she'd get very aggressive and she'd pick fights. So it affects your speech. It affects her walk. I could see just a stagger. She would stagger from side to side. That's how they used to be able to test uh, before the days of uh, you know, breathalyzers. They would get you to walk down the middle line in and, and the road. And, and if you were drunk, you just could, you'd be swaying from side to side. As hard as you tried to walk straight, you couldn't walk straight. And it also affects your inhibitions. People do things under the influence of alcohol that they would never dare to do. When they were sober. How many marriages are broken up at the office Christmas party? Why is that? Because alcoholism leads to infidelity. So what the, the word of God is saying is for the Christian, it is absolutely clearly the will of God to not be drunk with wine. You know the best way not to be drunk with wine is not to drink. Now, I know that you can call me a legalist if you want. If you'd witness what I witnessed growing up, you'd be a legalist too. I am scared to death of alcohol. And every alcoholic, because my grandmother was an alcoholic too, you know how it starts with one glass? That's how it starts. And in this day and age, it's not kind of popular to speak out against it. But I think from personal experience, I have a right to say something. And so I'm warning you, young people, it may be cool, and it may be you have a certain liberty to do it, but I, let me just warn you, don't do it. Please don't do it. I, when I uh, got saved, and of course I was saved out of that background, I was a drunkard, and, uh, 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 and I, I remember thinking to myself, when I get saved, I don't ever want any children that I have to witness what I witnessed growing up. And I said, before the Lord, the best way for that to happen is I'm going to stay as far away from that substance as I possibly can. And by the grace of God, I've been able to do that. And I'm still scared to death of it. Now, we say all that because what we're saying is that this substance controls people. And what he's saying here is, in contrary to contrast to being controlled by that substance that so affects somebody, he says, instead be in under the control of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit controlling somebody will also affect their speech. It will also affect their walk. And it certainly will affect their inhibitions in this sense that they would never do things under the control of the Holy Spirit that they might consider doing if they weren't controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so he exercises tremendous control on a person that submits themselves to him. And so uh, we're asking the question, well, what would a spirit-filled person look like? How would I be able to tell if somebody is filled with a spirit? And I believe that what the Apostle Paul does here is he actually describes to us some of the evidences... Of a spirit-filled life, and in verse 19, he says, "One of the things that God will give you through the Holy Spirit is a song, speaking to yourselves." He says in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Interesting how drunkards sing too, don't they? The Lord Jesus was, co- you know, He was the song of the drunkards. It tells us in Psalm 69, and so drunkards often sing, not very well, <laughs> and and uh, often it's terrible. But the child of God sings as well. And he sings the songs of redemption. And if you're under the control of the Spirit, you will sing. I wake up every day and God gives me a song, usually a different song every day. And I just love that. It's an evidence that the Spirit of God wants to bring Christ to my mind and he'll use songs to do it. And I drive down the highway singing these songs. That's a great sense that God is working in your life. And if you're in the flesh, you don't want to sing the songs of Zion. You don't. (laughs) No, not in the flesh. You don't want to do that. But when you're controlled by the Spirit of God, you've got a song. And then he says, "...you'll also give evidence of a thankful heart, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." The Holy Spirit will produce within the believer that's under his control a spirit of thanksgiving and there'll be that sense of thankfulness driving down the highway this morning seeing the garnish that the Spirit of God put in the heavens and I thought, I am so thankful that as a child of God I know the person that painted that landscape in the sky. Isn't that amazing? I mean, how much have we got to be thankful for? It's great, isn't it? And we should be the most thankful people on the planet. But if you're in the flesh, you will not be somebody who will be thankful. You will be groaning and complaining and belly aching like the children of Israel. So these are good tests. Do you have a song? <laughs> Do you sing the song of the redeemed? Are you a thankful person or are you a grouch? If you're a grouch, it could well be that the Spirit's not controlling you, but self is controlling you. These are good questions, aren't they? And then he says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Under the control of the Holy Spirit, I will be willing to trust the authorities that God has placed over me. And I'll be able to walk in subjection. I'll be able to submit, to rank under, to submit to one another. Whereas in the flesh, I'll be thinking like this. Who does he think he is? to tell me what to do with my life. See, that's what the flesh does, doesn't it? Flesh rises up. Anybody dare to, to, to come up to me and talk to me about anything? Who do they think they are? See, that's the flesh. But the Spirit of God would say, thank you that you care about me enough to tell me this thing in my life needs to change. And there'll be a willingness to submit to one another in the fear of God. Now, the parallel passage in Colossians, why I read that, I want you to notice something here in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verse 16. Because what we have is, although we have a different cause, we have the same effect. And so he says this in verse 16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. You see, there we've got the singing again. Although the, the cause is different. It's letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And then, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. There we've got the thanksgiving. In verse 18, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. You've got thanksgiving. So you've got exactly the three same effects but a slightly different cause. And yet, although they're different, they're complementary. See, to be filled with the Spirit, well, when I think of letting the Word of Christ dwell in me richly, the idea is that when God's Word comes to me, when the Word of God and the commands of Christ come to me, when I embrace them and make them a part of me, In other words, they actually dwell in me. In other words, it moves from the head down to the heart out through the will. You see, the problem with many of our assemblies is it never gets beyond the head. We we have this heady intellectualism that doesn't manifest itself in direct obedience. We don't need more information in the assemblies. We need more obedience. That's what we need. It's it's letting the word of God be at home in my life and welcoming it as a friend and saying, yes, I know that I need to apply that. I know I need to act on that. I want to make that part of my life. And if I do that, well, the scriptures, what does it say? about the scriptures, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And see, this this book has got the very breath of God in it, hasn't it? And so as I allow the truth and the precepts of this book to become part of my life, in a sense, I'm being controlled by the author of the book, who is the Spirit of God. And so we need to ask ourselves, how are we doing in these things? Now, Thinking a little bit further about this, and we're just talking about being filled with the Spirit, and we we do recognize that there are people that seem to have an incredible fullness of the Spirit in their lives. And um, I want us to to look again back at Acts chapter 6. I think some of us yesterday looked at this a little bit, uh, where we see examples in the book of Acts of people who experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit in a very particular way so that it was, it was evident, it was discernible to everybody. In verse 5 says, in the, uh, so verse 3, Wherefore, Acts 6 verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So here's Stephen, a man, it says, full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Verse 8, Stephen, full of faith and power. And and so it's clear that that Stephen is a man who you would have to say his life is absolutely surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit so that when people see him, he's a man full of the Holy Spirit. Now, can I just say this, and and I'm saying it because it's risky business here that we're talking about, um, but there are some people who become like Stephen gradually in increments, It's what we call progressive sanctification, so that as you go on as a Christian, it seems like uh, the Lord points things out to you, you put them into practice, and slowly but surely your life comes under the Spirit's control. That would seem to be normal for many of us, right? That idea of a slow but steady walking in obedience. But there are also other individuals that have a crisis experience And seem to experience fullness immediately. Sometimes it's at salvation. You hear people, they get saved and they just hit the ground running. (laughs) And they're walking in obedience and God is blessing their life and using them. And it just seems like, what happened? John the Baptist was like that, wasn't he? (laughs) He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. So I guess he hit the ground running. But the normal seems to be this gradual thing. But I want to talk about the crisis thing because sometimes, and again, part of it is because, you see, we're not charismatic. So we get nervous about this kind of crisis thing, right? And we say, is he teaching a second work of grace? And is he teaching a second blessing? Well, beloved, there were mightily used saints of God who had a crisis experience that changed their life and ministry forever. And I want to talk to you about some of them because none of them actually would fit into the charismatic bracket. Men like D.L. Moody, who had that experience. He felt the lack of power in his life. He, he sensed that. He was preaching. He was active. He was crying out to God to be filled with the Spirit. There were women in the church that were praying for him to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And on a specific day, walking down a street in New York City, he had an encounter with God. He met God, and he was never the same again. And he said he preached the same sermons, but with altogether new power. <clears throat> This is one that I just read this week, Samuel Chadwick. Uh, He was a Methodist evangelist in the British Isles. Some of you may have heard of a man called Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill came under the influence of Samuel Chadwick's ministry. Tremendous man of God. But he talks about his personal experience. This is how he describes it. When he he describes this, I'm saying, sign me up. This is what I want. Listen to what he says. When it came, I could not explain what had happened but I was aware of things unspeakable and full of glory. That sounds good to me, do not it, you? Huh? Would you like to have an experience with God that's just unspeakable and full of glory? He says, he says some results were immediate. There came into my soul a deep peace, a thrilling joy, and a new sense of power. My mind was quickened. I felt I had received a new faculty of understanding. Every power was vitalized. My bodily powers were quickened. There was a new sense of spring and vitality, a new power of endurance, a strong man's exhilaration in big things. Things began to happen. What we had failed to do by strenuous endeavor Came to pass without labor. It was as when the Lord Jesus stepped in the boat that, with all their rowing, had made no progress, and immediately the ship was at the land. And the idea is here's a man that's been laboring for the Lord, it's been hard work and lots of effort, and he's not really getting anywhere. And all of a sudden, he has an, an encounter with the living God, and all of a sudden, things start to happen in his ministry often it's in, in connection with surrender. You see, it's, it's this idea of the Holy Spirit. If I'm not surrendered, if my will is unsurrendered, if there's areas in my life that I'm saying, sorry, you can't have that. That's mine. That little corridor and that little door belongs to me. And while ever we're holding on to stuff, he can't, he can't do that. So it's this idea of surrender. And so um, there are men like Douglas Brown. Uh, he was... Uh, a very successful Baptist pastor in London. Um, Almost every Sunday night, people were saved in the gospel meeting, as many as 14 people on a Sunday night. The work was growing. And yet, for a long time, God had been speaking to him about becoming an itinerant evangelist. And he kept arguing with God and saying, No, I mean, look, you're blessing this. People are getting saved every single week, and the church is growing, and they love me, and I love them basically, like Peter in Cornelius' house, he's saying, not so, Lord. And yet, still seeing a measure of blessing, but there comes a day where he can't resist anymore. And he gets up 2 o'clock in the morning. He can't sleep. He knows that he's defying God. And he gets on his knees, and he said, okay, Lord, I quit the pastorate. From now on, I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do. And at that moment, he felt the power of God come upon him. He got invited to a series of gospel meetings in East Anglia, and his first sermon. God moved in a mighty way. People were getting saved left, right, and center. Before it was all over, over 600 people came to Christ in that one campaign. As a result, the revival fire spread and went all the way up to the east coast of Scotland. Multitudes were saved before it was all over. Because a man finally yielded his will unconditionally to the will of the Spirit. And God filled him with his power. There was another man involved in that evangelism, and you're going to probably throw me me out after this one, and I really don't care because I've got to tell you it. His name was Jock Troop. He's a Scotchman. He made barrels for a living, what we call a cooper. And so he would um, follow the mackerel fishermen as they would come from the, the highlands of Scotland. Following the mackerel down the British coast and always ending up in East Anglia, he would follow them and he would use his barrel making to sell for the salt fish that they would put in there. But he was also a man who had been gloriously saved and loved to preach the gospel, especially in the open air. So he'd do his barrel work by day and then he'd preach the gospel in the open air by night. And he'd had a crisis experience. He had experienced a a, a tremendous power in his preaching that came from a surrendered life. And one night he was praying in the middle of the revival. People are getting saved in droves. And as he prays, he sees a vision of a man in Fraserborough, Scotland, saying, come and help us. He believes this is of God. And so he leaves where he is, he gets the train, on the train up to Scotland, he leads every soul to the Lord in the car of the train that he's in. He gets to Scotland, and in Scotland, surprise, surprise, it's raining. It rains there in between the showers, that's why it's so green. And so there he is in the open air, Soaking rain, and he starts to preach because he knows God has called him to Fraserburgh. He begins to preach in a crowd out of sheer curiosity. Come out and see what is this nutcase doing preaching out in the rain? And as they listen to his message, the power of God comes upon them, and these men drop to their knees in the puddles on the ground and surrender their lives to Christ. Over 100 people were saved. And they want teaching. They want to grow in their new faith in Christ and so they look for a dry building and they see a light on up the top of the hill. It's the Baptist Church. They go up to the Baptist Church. In the Baptist Church the pastor and deacons have just met and they've decided to invite Jock Troop for a series of gospel meetings. So they open the door coming out and in walks Jock Troop with a hundred new converts. <laughs> One of the deacons was the man Jock Troop had seen in the vision. Now, all I'm saying to you is this, that these men didn't speak in tongues. They didn't try to speak in tongues. They didn't swing from chandeliers. They, want, they just wanted to make Christ known. Just like we've been singing about tonight. Their heart was the gospel. And they recognized they couldn't preach the gospel in human wisdom and human power. It wasn't working. And they needed divine power. And isn't that what it says? After the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the most parts of the earth. And so these were men that had surrendered life. And I could give you hundreds of examples from church history, not one of them charismatic. So why haven't we heard about them for the last 30 years? Because we're so paranoid about the work of the Holy Spirit... That we're missing out. I don't want to miss out on what God wants to do. Because if we really want what God wants to do. It starts in a very painful way. With a life of surrender. And maybe there are things in your life and things in my life. That are hindering what God's Holy Spirit wants to do with you. Now let's look at some of the possible hindrances. Look at Ephesians 4 for a moment please. Ephesians chapter 4, because we said that this person that lives within us, that wants to control us, he wants to control everything about our lives, just like the drunk is controlled by the the substance of alcohol, the child of God has to come under the control of the Holy Spirit to be effective. And so he says in verse 29 of Ephesians 4, and here are some of the things that might just be grieving the Spirit in our lives. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Just stop there. You ever had that experience? That the minute something comes out of your mouth, you know it's corrupting. You you wish somehow you could catch it and stick it back in. Have you ever had that experience? And you just know that power has gone out from you. In a sense, you've lost power, you've lost that intimacy. Why? You've grieved the person that lives within you. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed to the day of redemption. By the way, he's not going to leave you, but he can be grieved. And as he's grieved, he kind of shies away and takes a back place and allows self to come in and govern your life. So he says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You see, here's another thing. There are people in assemblies and somebody offended them 25 years ago and they've never gotten over it and they're filled with bitterness. Every time they see that person, they don't have good thoughts about him. There's a revival in Saskatoon in Canada in the 1970s. One of the deacons, he would sit at the back and look at people and he would say, I'd love to thrust a dagger in that one and thrust a dagger in that one. And his heart was so filled with hate. But when the revival came, he surrendered his life. And God used him as a tremendous soul winner. But up till then, he had perpetually grieved the Spirit of God because his heart was filled with bitterness. He, he couldn't forgive offenses against him because he hadn't really understood God's forgiveness. You see, verse 32 is the key, isn't it? Be kind one to another, tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You see, why can't I forgive an offense? Haven't I been forgiven? Lots of offenses, abundant offenses. Over years, I've offended God, and he has forgiven me how much? All offenses, hasn't he? And now somebody has offended me, and I I just can't get over it. No wonder God is not using your life. I was speaking in an assembly recently on this very subject. At the end of the message, nobody left. There was just silence. Silence. People just sat there and then one man stood up and he said, brothers and sisters, my heart has been filled with bitterness against you. Would you forgive me? Please pray for me. So three brothers got up and prayed. Then another guy got up and he said the same thing. My heart has been filled with bitterness too. And then another person got up and said, this week I said to my wife, I'm going to divorce you. And I repent of that. And God worked in that meeting. Nobody left for 80 minutes after the message was over because people did business with God that night because they didn't want to miss out on the fullness of the Spirit in their lives. Is there something in your life you need to take care of? Is there somebody you need to go see? Is, is there some sin that has just been gripping you that you need to repent of and forsake it? Because, listen, it, you cannot experience the fullness of the Spirit of God while you're harboring iniquity in your life. You just can't experience it. And then look at 1 Thessalonians 5, please. 1 Thessalonians five, nineteen. Quench not the Spirit, he says. By the way, <clears throat> this is a, just a beautiful portion. It begins, in everything, give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And then he says, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all, all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. And contextually, uh, this is one of the earliest epistles of the New Testament, and um, they don't have a completed Bible yet yet. Uh, they don't have any of John's writings. I mean, there's just an awful lot of the Bible they don't have back at this point. They don't have Romans. They don't have Ephesians. I mean, their, their New Testament's pretty small. And so how did God deal with new converts who didn't have a complete access to the New Testament like you and I do? Well, there was the gift of prophecy. And men would come and they would have a word for the assembly and it would deal with particular issues that they were, were struggling with. How do we deal with this? What do we do with this? And so he, he says to them, don't quench the spirit, despise not prophesying. However, he does say, prove all things. And part of the reason for that is whenever you've got true prophecy, you also have false prophets, right? And so if somebody gets up and says, I've got a word from the Lord, it has to be checked with what God has already said. I remember in our early days, charismatic gathering, and uh, somebody said they had a word from the Lord, and, and uh, uh, it was to do with a couple that they should get married. And, well, uh, I knew that couple, and I knew that one of them wasn't saved, and I knew that that wasn't a message from God, because God's already given a message on that, hasn't he? No one equal yoke. So we have to test things. Now, again, I believe that now even uh, it's kind of changed slightly. The scripture's complete. God is not going to say anything else. There's no, no new revelation. And, but nevertheless, messages that are given from this platform, you need to, on the one hand, do not despise what the Spirit is trying to say to the assembly. On the other hand, put it to the test. Just because Mike Atwood says it, or Joe Reese says it, or Scott DeGraff says it, or Dave Dixon Jr. says it, check it out, right? Test it with scripture. You know, that we've got to do that. But let me tell you something. One of the tragedies is that sometimes it's possible, and this idea of quench, you see, it's it's the language of fire that we're going to be talking Wednesday about the symbols of the Holy Spirit and the idea is to put the fire out and what God wants to do God the Holy Spirit is light a fire in every heart in this room he really does because you see the temperatures kind of lukewarm in the Laodicean church right and he said I'd rather you be hot by the way, the word zeal means hot. So he wants to light a fire. He wants to, the Lord Jesus was hot, wasn't he? Zeal for thy house has consumed me. Isn't that what they said about him? He would, today you'd say he's a fanatic. Calm down, take some deep breaths. What are you getting so excited about? The zeal of the house of God consumed him. And so God wants to light a fire, and we can put the fire out. You know how you can put a fire out? Three different ways that I know of. Maybe there's more. One is you can stop providing fuel. If you're not in the Scriptures, then you're, you're removing the fuel that the Spirit of God wants to light a fire with you. Right? You've got to be in the Scriptures. You've got to be in communion with God in prayer. You've got to enjoy the, the means of communion with God if we want to have fire. You've got to have fuel. The other thing is we can pour cold water on it, or we can smother it with dirt. Isn't that what you do with a campfire if you want to put it out? See, if you smother it with dirt, there's no oxygen. Could it be that in our assemblies there are people that are quenching the Spirit because they're involved in dirt? Privately, quietly, all the rest of it, it's quenching the Spirit in your life and collectively, in the life of the assembly? Could it be that we're quenching the spirit because we're not providing fuel? And could it be, and I've seen this, I was in an assembly, very similar to what happened recently, where after a meeting, I wasn't speaking, somebody else spoke, but it was evident that God spoke that, that day. And... Uh, Nobody got up for a while because there was just stunned silence because God was speaking. And you know, you know how sometimes you get up and you kind of break into this innocuous chat that is just kind of kills the whole thing dead? Nobody did that. There was a lot of deep thinking going on. God had spoken. And then eventually a man got up and he confessed something that he'd been involved in. And there was a lot of tears, and there was a lot of reconciliation, there was a lot of hugging, and there was a lot of praying, a spontaneous prayer making broke out. And then all of a sudden, some of the people just kind of got a little bit nervous. It was getting out of hand, they thought. And they put the, the stop on it. That assembly doesn't exist today. It was on the verge of spiritual revival. Cold water was poured on the whole thing. It's gone. I don't want to be guilty in any way, shape, or form of quenching the Holy Spirit. I want him to light a fire tonight in my heart and in your heart. I don't want to live with cold indifference, with apathy. You know, that's what's killing us, isn't it? Isn't that that the problem in many of our assemblies, this apathetic attitude? Uh, Apathy, uh, pathos, no feeling, no feeling, unemotional. You see, we're so intellectual, we've lost touch with emotion. God hasn't lost touch with emotion. We got it right here, grief, right? Grieving the Holy Spirit. Uh, I remember first breaking bread in Ireland after we'd been church planting there, got a bunch of people, converted Catholics, breaking bread for the first time, And people were weeping at the joy of remembering the Savior. Yeah, weeping for joy. It was amazing. And I was in a meeting not too long ago. And the long, awkward silences spoke very loudly. We don't have anything good to say about the Lord Jesus. How can we not have anything good to say about the Lord Jesus? There are men that know their Bibles backwards to frontwards, you know, and, and they sit there like bumps on a log week after week after week and have no worship to present to the one who is worthy of it. What are they doing? Somewhere along the line, the spirit of God is quenched. You ever had that experience where God has prompted you to get up as a brother and give out a him and you just know you should have done it, but maybe nervousness or whatever, or whatever, you just didn't do it. The Spirit of God prompted somebody else to get up and give out the same hymn. See, he got the blessing; you didn't. God told you to do it. You, ever, you see, God does prompt us to do things. The Spirit of God is alive and well. I tell you one story and we'll close, but just get an illustrate. Anybody heard of David Long? He's a missionary in uh, in Angola with Tionis Wilson. But when we first went to Ireland, we were rookie missionaries. We didn't really know anybody. And uh, I uh, asked Sam Robinson of CMML, I said, is there any wise older brother who'd be good for counsel for a rookie missionary on the mission field? And straight away, without even thinking, he said, David Long. So I called David Long. He gave me his phone number. And I said, David, we're new missionaries here. Uh, I just need a sounding board. There are things we're going to face. I just want to have somebody who's... Been there, done that, as it were, got the t-shirt to talk to. Would you be willing to be that sounding body? He said, I'd love to. And he did. He came down and had ministry with us. He uh, Often I'd go up to his house and just for a week, wear the man out. He was 85 years of age, and we would just have a and a session for a week. <laughs> the guy would be glad to see me drive out of his driveway. I think he was just totally exhausted. But what a resource. And so we'd move back after being there um, for eight years, and we were back in the States, and one day I just felt this clear prompting, you need to call David Long and thank him. Because you see, oftentimes what happens is we intend to do that, and then somebody dies, and afterwards we say, I wish I'd have said that to Brother So-and-so. Maybe there's somebody in this room that you really ought to speak to, tell them how much you appreciate them. Don't wait till after they're dead to wish that you did it. Spirit prompted me very clearly, so I called him, and uh, he had already had dementia, was setting in, but his wife, Barbara, told me, said, Oh, this is an amazing day that you called because he is really with it today. So I called him and I just told him how much we'd appreciated his labors amongst us and, and the wisdom that he had passed on and just how we thank God for him. And I wanted to pray with him. So I did. And, and, uh, and then um, he remembered and, and talked really with quite fondness of the time that he'd be down there with us and all the rest of it. And so after that, I put the phone down and it wasn't a week before I heard that he'd gone home to glory. Well, I'm sure glad I responded to that prompting. You see, the spirit of God is, is real. Uh, it's an amazing thing. Just think about this. You have living, if you're a child of God tonight, living within you is the person of the spirit of God. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, when, when the, the glory of God filled the temple, it was an amazing thing, wasn't it? Well, God's new temple is your body. And the spirit of glory rests upon you. What an amazing thing. What a tragedy to have such a wonderful person living within you who wants to control your life In you saying, sorry, but I like to be in control. I am not going to yield my will to your will. I don't think that's a good thing, is it? Maybe there's some of us tonight just need to get alone with God, get on our knees, and unconditionally yield ourselves fully to God the Holy Spirit. See, it's a command. Be ye continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody used to always be praying that he'd be filled with the Spirit. Somebody said, why do you keep on praying you'd be filled with the Spirit? He said, because I leak. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes things come out of our mouths, don't they? That grieve the Spirit of God. Sometimes we don't obey immediately and we quench the Spirit of God, and we need to make sure that he has unhindered freedom to work in our lives. So we've thought about the significance, we've thought about the sensitivity, Lord willing, we will look at the symbols of the Holy Spirit on Wednesday evening, let's pray. Father, we would just be honest with you tonight and we recognize that a lot of your work seems to be very hard. And uh, it, it almost seems like we're doing it in our own strength and we're not really getting anywhere. We're like those men who were rowing furiously to get to the other side. And we just want to ask that just like Samuel Chadwick and his experience, that Jesus would come in the boat through the Holy Spirit and enable us to do the work of God with power so that lives are forever transformed Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has bitterness towards a brother or sister, that they won't wait another day to get things settled. Lord, I think of men who have said to me, I'll leave it till the judgment seat. Oh God, what a scary thing to do. Lord, I pray for that sensitivity to the Spirit of God, that willingness and eagerness to respond to whatever he prompts us to do. Lord, we want to be led by the Spirit. We want to be filled by the Spirit. Why do we want these things? Because we want the Lord Jesus Christ to be magnified. In a world that thinks so little of him, we want to make much of him. And we want to do that in divine power. So again, commit the assembly to thee here. Commit the saints to thee. Pray that this might not be a place where the spirit of God is quenched we will give you the glory In the name of our lord Jesus Christ amen